welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we hope you join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We are located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After the message, take a moment and visit our website at vcctulare.com. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Last week we talked about John the Baptist, and he was the man in A.D. 29. I mean, even Josephus, uh, which was a, a Jewish historian writing for the Romans, wrote more about John the Baptist than he did about Christ during that time. So, I mean, he was the man before Christ really arrived on the scene. And if you study Jewish history, you have to know about this guy. And somewhere in, in AD 28, 29, or, or 30 was a year of what's called Jubilee, uh, which is a sabbatical year. And every seven years, they were supposed to take a year of Jubilee. They were supposed to let the land rest, and they were supposed to rest their bodies and, and do something a little different. And, and, and this is why we believe that, uh, that so many people were showing up during this time to hear John and to hear others uh, teach about the Word of God. It's because they had a little more free time on their hands, because it was somewhere in there the year of Jubilee. Uh, that we know about. Uh, and it might explain why the crowds would have been so big. So, you know, they, they all show up for the show. And I, I got a few pictures here of the, the area that John the Baptist and the scenes would have been in. We, we think he was part of them. Um, but just a few pictures of this arid, kind of dry area. They just got away. They, they didn't want to be around the hubbub of the city. It would be like, you know, going from San Francisco out to the valley in Tulare. You know, you just get away from all the stuff going on. Uh, it's completely different living here uh, than it is living out there. Believe me, I know. I've lived in both places, and it's a lot more relaxing. So it's kind of the same thing. They got away. They, they would be able to study. They would be able to think. They would be able to, to just really take some time and relax. And this is what they were doing. And this is just some of the, uh, some of the pictures from that area. But we also know that these people would have showed up for the show. They would have shown up because they knew the religious leaders were going out there to hear this man, to find out who he was and what he was about. And they knew that there would be some fireworks happening uh, between the two. And, and, you know, John would say to them what we always want to say to those that, that kind of irritate us. But instead of saying it behind their backs and not to their faces, John just outright says it straight to them. And it kind of really irritated them and so forth. And this will actually lead to, to uh, the Roman government uh, cruci- uh, crucifying, not crucifying, but, but killing John the Baptist. Um, and, uh, and the Romans wouldn't have, had, wouldn't have got him. The Jews surely would have. So as we studied last week, they showed up and they questioned John. Who are you? And they knew who he was. He was, you know, uh, his dad was of the priestly tribe, and they all knew this. So what they were really asking is, who have you become? Are you the Messiah? Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? And he said no to all of these. And later on, Jesus would, would, would uh, hint at, would say that John was Elijah. So either he really didn't understand it himself, like he just didn't even realize, or he didn't really even care to talk to him. He's just like, no, 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 get away. I don't really want to talk to you guys. Guys, don't worry about me. I am the voice of the one who came, the one who, who paves the way for the king. And if you think that I have something to say about your holiness and, and your version of righteousness... Wait till you hear what this guy has to say about religion and the temple that you so much worry about. 
and that you so much, you know, put all your time, energy, and effort into. Wait until he shows up. And this is where we pick up today. We're in John 1.29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom, uh, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized, baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, how many of you have heard that phrase before? Behold, the, the Lamb of God. For some of you, you, you might have never heard this phrase. Uh, and, and it's one of those, it's a kind of a weird saying, and, and John actually invents this, this saying. No one has ever said this before. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But no one before John the Baptist has said this. And while John is in the wilderness, he'd probably been reading the book of Isaiah. We know that the Essenes were, were really studying that book because, you know, any good Jewish man would study that book because, because that foretold the coming of the Messiah. And they'd done all the calculations of how many months and how many weeks and, and, and how many years it would be before Christ would come somewhere in there. They, you know, there's some different hints throughout the scripture. So they would have been, would have been looking for the Messiah. So he reads in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own, uh, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, <laughs> laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he also says, you know, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. So he opened not his mouth. So we see John starting to put together the, the whole concept of Messiah is also a lamb. Now it's unusual to call a man a lamb. I, I, you know, it's not a manly you know, nickname, as it were. I mean, you know, hey lamb, come over here. I mean, you just, it's not something that you want. But John took this concept, you know. It would be weird for us to, to say, look, the lamb. But in the first century Jewish mind... It would actually even be weirder than it would be today. Why is that? Well, when they thought of a lamb, what did they think about? They thought about sacrifice. Thought about Passover or the Day of Atonement or, or the Temple. So let's take a moment to kind of you know, cover those concepts a little bit. A lamb was for sacrifice. Therefore, millions of lambs, and a goat is interchangeable in that, but millions of lambs were sacrificed until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. They have no idea how many lambs have been sacrificed to cover sin. But every morning and every evening over the years, a lamb would be brought in and sacrificed for the covering of sins. Now this is unusual for us to, to, to really think about, but not for them. This is how their sins got covered. A lamb was sacrificed and then the blood was sprinkled over the altar and that would cover their sins. On the Day of Atonement, there would have been two lambs. 
And like I said, sometimes a goat would be used and they were interchangeable there. But one lamb would be sacrificed and everybody would cheer because, you know, they would feel so good because all my sins, everything I've done that's wrong has been, been, been covered. And then the other goat the priest would take out and he would lay his hands on and pray a prayer of putting all the sins on that, on that goat and then they would let him go into the hills into the wildness. This is where the term scapegoat comes from. So when the scapegoat was released, the people would say, our sins are covered and our sins have been released. But they would also know that they really were not covered completely. They weren't taken away, they were just covered. So when you say lamb to Israel, they may even go back to Genesis 22. You, many of you know the story of you know Moses uh, is commanded by God, take your son out, for you're going to sacrifice. And he took him to Mount Moriah. And while he's going, you know, I'm sure, and when I say son, we're not talking about a little kid. We're talking a man of understanding. So anywhere from 13 to probably 20 some odd years old. And as they're going along, I can imagine him saying to, to, to Moses, Hey, Dad, where, where's the sacrifice? Hey, hey Dad, I, I, I loaded the wood. We got everything going. Where's the, you know, I'm, I'm holding the torch because anytime they want to start fire, basically if they already had fire, they always kept fire going. I'm sure they took the torch with them. Dad, we have everything. Where's the lamb? And Dad thinking the whole way, oh, Lord, I don't want to do this. Lord, I, I don't want to do this. And he just tells his son, don't worry, the Lord will provide. And he gets up there and he ties down his son. I mean, I don't know if I could do that if, if I had a child. I, I just don't know. And he gets ready to sacrifice him. And the Lord says, hold on a second. I provided a lamb for sacrifice. So many of them would have went, you know, went to that concept. And that concept was, was showing that the Lord was, would take his own son and really sacrifice his own son. Or they would have been thinking about Passover. Or they killed the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost to protect their firstborn. In Exodus 12, a lamb and... and uh, uh, well, in Exodus 12, the, the plagues were coming down on Egypt. And Moses would go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh's heart was hardening. And he said, no, you've got to be joking. I mean, these are our slaves. These are you know, what keeps our economy going. There's no way we're going to allow this to happen. So the plagues began. And what were the plagues? They were all centered around Egyptian gods. You love frogs, you worship frogs. <laughs> I'm going to give you frogs. They're going to be everywhere. Because once a frog got into something, it was considered sacred, so they couldn't do anything about it. So, you know, in the oven or the storehouses or, or, or the, you know, where the water is and all that, they couldn't clean them because those are, those, those are gods. We've got to leave them alone. So all of a sudden they couldn't drink, they couldn't eat. I mean, all this stuff going on. You love the Nile, I'm going to affect the Nile. You love the sun, I'm going to give you darkness. And God often does this still today. Oftentimes our, our hassles and struggles that we go through, right before we give our heart to the Lord, He'll start messing around with our earthly gods, with the things that we hold in high esteem. Now that doesn't sound very loving, does it? But the reality is this. He's just trying to wake us up. He's just trying to, to, to get our mind wrapped around there's something bigger in this world than what we worship oftentimes if we don't worship the ultimate creator. And this God that you may have, this thing that you hold in high esteem, is probably way too small of a God 
probably way too small until you start to understand the ultimate lamb has come for your sins. So, as you know, I can imagine God saying, as God, I'm going to take your firstborn, your next Pharaoh, your son. I'm going to take it because I want to show you who controls the world. And because of the lamb's blood, Israel was not, you know, affected. When they saw the, lamb, you know, the lamb's blood on the doorpost, they were passed over. In fact, very soon after John makes a statement, there would be Passover. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So all of a sudden you, you have John connecting the two, Jesus and the Lamb. And this would have been incredible blasphemy for the Jews. Uh, like I said, if the Romans hadn't killed him, the Jews probably would have. He was saying a man was going to be that Lamb. A man was going to be that God that would take away the sins of the world. Because the only thing that could take away sins is God. And God is going to allow that lamb to be killed and his blood spread around. And this blood was not just to cover or protect, but it would take away the sins of the world. So if you'd like to study this a little further, I I wanted to go there, but I I already had too many pages of notes, so I didn't. Um, You know, look at Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. I think it's important for us to understand that the baseline for us being followers of Jesus, what we call a Christian, is to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Is somebody who understands why. Why Jesus did what he did on the cross. To understand that concept of a lamb being sacrificed for sins. You see, when we start to get religion that starts to turn into a relationship, we start enjoying church. We start enjoying the youth ministry and, and we start enjoying the worship and the relationships and studying the word. But once we pick a church, it's important for us not to stop there. Not to, to stop, well, I really like those people because they seem really good people. They're really moral. Not to, to go, oh, well, you know, these people, they, they really love the Word, and that's why I go there. Or, you know, my kids really dig the dismissal songs from the VeggieTales. What is important for us is to understand the baseline of why we meet. Because John the Baptist just said, the Lamb of God has taken away our sins. Taken them away. To be able to say, I accept that man as a sacrifice for my sins. Not only my guilt, which is hard enough, but also the shame of the sin that's in my life. He takes both. You see, what is really interesting about the Lord is, He doesn't come in and say, Alan, I know your life is tough. So, so you know, and give you, you know, gives me a big old hug and say, it's okay what you've done. He, he doesn't do it that way. You know, it's no big deal. Because it is a big deal. Our sin is a big deal in the Lord's eyes. Especially if we haven't accepted Christ yet. That sin is going to take us where? To hell. Because we believe in a heaven and a hell. That sin is what takes us to hell. But it's amazing to me that when He comes into my life, He gives me that hug and He says, Okay, now that you recognize who I am, I want you to turn from your ways. I want you to start becoming more like like me. We're going to see today the beginning of the disciples, I mean, almost immediately becoming more like Christ. It's just amazing. Uh, The same wordage they start to use as Christ uses. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is to accept that He is the Lamb 
He is the one that takes away my sins. His sacrifice on the cross is not just what covers my sin. He takes it away. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, He will cast my sin away. Now back then, they didn't have a concept of, of a round globe as earth. You know, they had a concept of a flat earth. So how far is the east from the west? I mean, they, they don't wrap back around and touch again. You can, you, that's as far as it can get apart. You know, they would say, you just can't go there. That's, a, that's one of our favorite statements. When somebody irritates us, we look at it, don't go there. No, 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 no. You don't understand. Don't go there. That's, that's what this statement is saying. As far as the east from the west, don't even go there about my sin because it's already been covered. That's the concept we're talking about here. But with my sin, you just can't go there because Jesus took it away. It is gone. It is cast away. It doesn't have a fishing line attached to it. You know, when I stand before Jesus, it's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna grave me on a curve. It's a pass or fail. This is why you need to think about where you are in this life. Where you are in, in a relationship with Jesus. Do you even have a relationship with Him? So John starts recognizing Jesus as the Lamb. And you will start to see Him push His followers toward Jesus. And this is probably a little painful for some of them. But this is His assignment. This is His job. This is what the Lord has made Him for. No matter how many people, how many guys started to follow Him, He pushed them toward Jesus. And this is our job as well. We need to push people toward Jesus. Not only invite them to church, but push them toward Christ. Verse 37. The two disciples heard Him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to Him, Rabbi... Or teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. Now, ironically, this is so different than John the Baptist. We start to see the grace of Christ paired with the truth of John the Baptist. Not repent and be baptized. Because that's what John would have said to him. You know, what do you seek? Repent and be baptized, you know. I mean, Christ is saying, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. These two disciples we come to understand are Andrew and John. And Jesus says to them, come and see. And what is really cool is they actually followed him. They didn't just, didn't just recognize what John said was true. They didn't just go, oh, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Okay, I understand that now. But they actually went. We have to do something with what we believe. If we just sit back and say, oh, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who takes away my sins, the sins of the world, great, I understand that now. No, we got to go beyond that. We have to start being active in our relationship with Christ. We have to walk forward and not just stay right there. Because very soon after this, John is grabbed by the Romans and, and he's killed or martyred. And I really, I mean, my, my mind is, is kind of crazy. I love to think about weird stuff. And one of the weird things this week was the fact that Jesus could have invited John the Baptist to be one of his 12 disciples. And then that got me going, uh, you, you think we laugh at Peter and the things that he said? You know, you know, Peter and John, I think it was, or whatever, you know, they go to Christ and they say, 
well, Christ, this town doesn't accept you. Should we call down fire from heaven? And Christ kind of laughs and rebukes him for, for even thinking that. No, John the Baptist, he wouldn't even ask Jesus permission. He would have just called down fire from heaven. I mean, he just would have jumped right in and started. Imagine the fun that we could have had, finally, you know, what this would have been. But that was not his job. And this is really weird to think about. Because there's been times in my life where, where, where the Lord has used certain people and I look at them and go, why? I, I just don't get it, Lord. I mean, because I'm looking around and I'm sitting there going, there's, there's people probably more qualified than that person or, or somebody that I'm sitting there going, I, I just don't understand it. But he uses specific people for specific reasons. And we sit back and say, wait a second, I think this other person would be much better for that. And the Lord says, you know what? I've been doing this for a while, so let, let me control these things, Alan. Well, Lord, well, well, then what's my job? And he says, I'm glad you asked, because I've been trying to talk to you about it, but you've been focused on everybody else and everything else. So let me talk to you. We have to focus on a relationship with Jesus and leave the other stuff for the Lord. Now, sometimes, now don't get me wrong, sometimes the Lord will use us to change situations. And, and, but I, I say Make sure the Lord is using you. Make sure you've talked with the Lord about that before you go off and do something. Well, back to the Word. Now, when they start following Jesus, He turns around and asks them a really cool question. What do you seek? They're seeking. Now, not everyone is a seeker. A seeker is someone who's interested enough in something to investigate it. To go and, and find out about it. And this, you know, the really cool thing is this. When you seek, you will find. The scriptures say that. And their answer is, is just as interesting. Where are you staying? We want to get to know you better before we can supply that answer to you. And this is what seekers do. They show up and they start hanging out. This is why it's important not only to, to you know, for, for us as a body to show them who we are and to talk and get to know one another, but also who we are in Christ, that we love the Lord. It's important for us to, to you know, for, to show others that they began to see that we love the Lord. And the cool thing is this, Jesus promises, if you seek, you will find. And if you are honestly seeking the truth, you will find the truth. And it comes with a truck full load of grace. And this is what surprises me. And I, I run into this over and over. And even in my own mind, I have to get past this sometimes. You know, when we come to Christ and He saves us and, and we, we start to realize, wow, my sins really are lifted. I mean, it's like a dump truck full of grace just dumped into my life. And I feel great. But then, as, as I don't spend as much time with Christ, you know, in, in my relationship, that grace kind of suffers a little bit, and I don't feel it as much. And then Christ comes back along with another dump truck load full. And I'm like, well, I've already got my grace. He goes, no, but, but I got more grace. I want you to stop sinning. You know, we, we, don't, we don't sin more where grace abounds, because that grace does cover us. But he's going, I got all the grace that you will ever need. So become more like me. Become more like me. Some people are seeking because they're looking for the truth. Some people are seeking because their life has fallen apart. So they're, they're, they're going to try God. And both of these are very legitimate reasons, legitimate ways to seek. However, some people seek the Lord because they're looking for happiness. I am unhappy 
Therefore, I'll try Christianity. And this may or may not happen for them. Because what they're looking for is a feeling. And not the the inner joy of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That says, man, my life is really messed up right now. But I know that God is in control because I do know one thing. God is not up in heaven wringing His hands over our lives. He knows what's going on. And He is still in control. Therefore, I can be happy... I can have joy because He knows. It is called inner joy. Not, I feel good today. Health is good. My bank account is full. Therefore, I'm happy. Not because I go out and I fish and and I catch a lot of fish and the other guys caught nothing. And and that feels great. Believe me, I know from my fishing trip. That is really cool. Especially when they're fishing 10 feet away and they're not getting a thing. Because if that's the only thing that makes me happy, something's wrong. Because then there's days, like the next day I had fishing, that I didn't catch a thing. I couldn't even catch my lunch. I'm like, guys, if you've got a couple of fish, go ahead and put them on your stringer because I don't even have lunch today. Now, you will experience a great day when you understand that your sins are gone. When the Holy Spirit entered into the disciples in Acts, they were so happy, even to the point where other people were just like, are you guys drunk? You're so happy. I don't get this. There's something wrong with you. And you will experience an emotional happiness when God is active in your life. But one thing I know is this. That kind of comes and goes depending on our relationship and how much time we spend with Him. This is emotional happiness. And this is a lot like every other relationship that that you've ever been in. This is that infatuation part uh, of a romance. I tell you, you know, my my wife probably would tell you that, that, you you know, that that when we were dating that there was all this just emotional love that was there. But then after 15 years of marriage, I know my wife loves me. I know sometimes she doesn't always like me, but I know she loves me. That's how marriage is. That's how relationships go. But if we expect to to get married and stay in that infatuation stage all our life, man, a couple years into marriage, you're like, I'm not having, you know, I'm not happy. And we take off. And the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. Sometimes we do that. We come under an emotional happiness, and then all of a sudden, like a truck hits us, and we end up going, I don't know. What happened? And we either do one or two things. We either pray and go back to God, or we run away. We have to go back to the question that Jesus had. What are you seeking Jesus promises a life full of joy, not necessarily a life full of happiness. See, joy is an underlying feeling, a new wine that's going to be poured into old religion. And and we're going to study this in chapter 2 as we, we get to Canaan. New wine poured into that old religion. I promise you joy, not always happiness. So the reality is this. If you seek Jesus, truly seek Him, you might be surprised, but you won't be disappointed. And He even might change your your values and the desires of your heart. There's a great verse that that talks about He will give you the desires of your heart when you trust in Him. And we go, oh man, that's great because, you know, I've been desiring this new car, this new truck, or, or, you know, that really cool toy, or or a new computer. Okay, well, those are kind of the guy things, right? Let's try some... How about, you know, for the ladies, scrapbookers? Oh, I've been desiring that new cricket cartridge or the cricket machine or, or whatever it is that you desire or I'm desiring my, my husband would get off the couch and that's a great desire to have. 
I want this and I want this and I want this and I want this. But then we, we, we start to read scripture and we start to understand again that what happens is that when we seek him, he will, you know, he begins to change our desires in our hearts for the things that we want. So when we trust in Him, when we start to build that relationship, He starts changing us on the inside, so our desires all of a sudden start to change. And then our desires match up with His desires, and then He delivers them. It's an amazing thing. And what's really cool is, when we truly seek Him, and when we find Him, we start to go out and we start to grab others, just like the disciples did. Verse 40, it says... One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. This guy Andrew is a really cool guy. You don't hear a lot about this guy. Uh, you know, and he's already a great guy because he was already seeking the truth. You know, he's a follower of John the Baptist. So he was a true seeker. But also, as, as soon as he met Jesus, he spends one day with Christ. And then he goes and gets his brother Peter. And that's a really cool thing. And they called him Simon or Shimon. You know, Peter is his Greek name. And Simon was, it was a common Jewish name. So he brings him to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, right here it says, Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, hey, What's ironic is he doesn't even introduce him to him. Jesus already knows who he, who he is and already knows his name. Jesus knows us even before we come to him. He's already waiting for us. He says to him, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. Now, wouldn't it be cool if everybody we met, we could just rename? Hey, hey, man, your name is Ralph. I'll just call you Paco from now on. I mean, this is what Christ does. What is Jesus doing here? He is identifying you know, something in Simon that Simon doesn't see himself yet. Peter means rock or, or stone in Greek. And I can imagine Andrew going, oh yeah, he, he's like a little pebble in your shoe that you just can't get out. He's that irritating, irritating Christ. Andrew wouldn't have called him a rock. But it seems to me that he goes right past Andrew here and he says to Simon, you are rock. You are to be called Rocky. And this is so cool because everyone else judges us from the outside. When you meet new people, you know, hi, what's your name? Oh, what, what do you do? What's your business? I mean, we're, we're trying to size each other up, right? And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. We're trying to figure out who you are, how to understand, you know, how you've been raised and all the, those cool things. But he goes right past that. Christ is saying, I am judging you on what I know you are. Not on your past. Not on what you've, you've done in your life. But on what you're going to do from this day forward. Christ judges us on who we're going to be. Who are you going to be? Well, you don't understand, Pastor Allen. I mean, this is who I was. I'm not worthy. I mean, I know he covered my sins, but, but, but you know, I mean, my past, you ought to see it. Here, here's all the red pages in the folder. There's no way he could use me. There's no way that he could love me. Well, I know he loves me. I know I'm a Christian, but, but there's no way I can be used for anything else. And he says, you know what? I dealt with that already. I want to judge you on who I'm going to make you into. And now you are rocky 
And he starts to call him a rock. And he calls him this from this day forward. And guess what? Peter slowly turns into what? A rock. He slowly over time gets, gets built up. And, and this is, I mean, you know, this goes actually back to basic parenting techniques. If you're down on your kid all the time, when they get older, oh man, look out. But if, but if you're encouraging, if you're building them up, what happens? They, they become encouraged. They become built up. They become so much better. And this is what he does. And Peter starts to change from the inside out. Verse 43, it says, The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And I'm really quickly going to go through about seven pictures of the Galilee area because I just want you to get a, an idea of, of the area. We're not going to send it, you know, I'm not going to explain every little picture, but I kind of want you, you to get a picture in your mind of the land and, and kind of how hilly it is. It's, it's a lot like San Francisco Bay Area when it comes to the hills and, and temperature-wise. It could be 100 degrees on one area and it could be 60 degrees in another area and so forth. Um, so there's just some of the extra pictures. If you want some more, I can always get you some. But but this is really cool because some people are brought to Christ uh, by family. But others, you ask them how they became a Christian. You know, Peter's brought by Andrew. But you ask others, how, how did you become a Christian? And they will say, I'm not quite sure. Jesus just found me. Ironically, he goes to Galilee and he finds Philip. He found Philip. This is amazing to me because they didn't even go get Philip because they're from Bethsaida. Philip's from Bethsaida. I'm sure they knew him. They didn't go get Philip. But Christ found him. Jesus was looking for him. And this is so cool because Jesus oftentimes looks for us. And they said to him, or Christ said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him uh, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And we both see Philip and Nathanael are students of the law. They understand the Bible. They understand, they've been studying this stuff. And probably his Bible study partner. And he's sitting there going, you won't believe who I found. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? No way, guys, nothing. Philip said to him, and, and look who he sounds like here. He says to him, come and see. One day with Christ, and he already starts to sound like Christ. How, it's amazing how quickly sometimes we be, can become more like Christ. For some areas of my life, it's been years and years in crisis and are going, okay, Alan, it's time to change that. And then other areas of my life, it's like instant. It's like a snap. It's amazing. Now, what is cool about Philip is that Nathaniel almost misses out on being one of the 12 disciples. Almost misses out. And it was because of his prejudice. His preconceived notion, you know, ruled out Nazareth. You know, I've read, I, I've read Micah and, and it said Bethlehem. So no, but it couldn't be him. I mean, Nazareth was this corrupt Roman town. Well, you know, and, and, and Philip could have been like, okay, man, if that's really how you feel. You know, or he could, you know, he could have developed the, the six-month plan. Okay, or six months, I'm really going to change his mind. But instead he says, come and see. So what happens? Here comes Nathaniel. And the other guys are watching to see what happens because they've already experienced Christ and how he knows things that, that he shouldn't know. 
And they know how Nate is, you know, a student of the Bible, kind of, you know, very, very you know, logical guy. I'm sure they were thinking, wait till Nate, you know, wait till Nate meets this guy. Verse 47, it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. What a compliment that is. I'm sure Peter was already saying, you called me a rock. You're calling him a guy that has no deceit? I mean, come on. That's not fair. The root of all this is, where, is the word Jacob. And back then, this word meant guile or deceiver. So what Jesus was saying here is, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no Jacob. So Jesus is doing this whole wordplay thing because he knows that, that, that Nate was a student of the Bible here. So Nathaniel is, is you know, pretty evenly killed. You know, I mean, uh, evenly, you know, he's, uh, my mind just, I, I wrote a word and I can't even figure out how, what it says here. But, you know, he's not easily flattered. He's even killed. There you go. Boat term. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Give me a break. You don't even know who I am. Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Not an apple tree, not a pear tree. From about 14 miles away, I saw you there. Now, Nathaniel has something he can't explain. And I think for those who are highly educated, faith sometimes comes harder for you. Especially if you came, you know, if you come to Christ later in life. I mean, that whole struggle of coming to Christ and recognizing faith when, when, when you're a very smart person is very difficult because it doesn't seem logical. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I was there. Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, our teacher, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And he's serious. And I love Jesus' answer because it really shows the humor that Christ has, that, that oftentimes we leave out that humor. I love his answer. He says, verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I have said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I saw you. Or I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What he's doing here is, is what most scholars believe is that he's revealing to Nathaniel the things that he'd been studying. He'd most likely been studying Jacob and Jacob's ladder, the story of, uh, uh, you know, that story of Jacob. And he's sitting there going, I knew what you were studying. And what you've studied is right here before you. You're not a Jacob. You're not a deceiver. You're a good man of Israel. And I'm going to use you. And you're going to see greater things than that Bible story, that Scripture that you were already reading. I've been a part of your search all along. Are you going to follow me or not? And he very logically says, yes, You are my leader now. And here on out, I'm going to follow you. Is there anybody here today that needs to say, Yes, you are my leader. 
from here on out, I'm going to follow you. Such an important question. Is it time for you to finally say, yes, you are my leader? As we begin to pray, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, you are so beautiful. You are my leader, and I choose to follow you. I pray, Lord, this morning that if there are those here that don't know who you are, that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that are seeking, I pray that you impress upon them that if they seek you, they will find you. Lord, we thank you so much for our relationship in you. And I pray, Lord, that as, that as we study about the disciples and how they relate to you, that we put ourselves in that place because we are your disciples. We are your followers. And you were right here beside us just like you were for them. Your Holy Spirit lives in our life, and we thank you so much for that. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you and give you rest in this world that goes goes so quickly by. I pray that His face never turns from you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.